5,000, we're going to give it a particularly missions application this morning. John chapter 6. We're going to read first just verses 5 and 6, and then we'll get into the rest of the account in just a little bit. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 5, And when Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he did to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. You know, if you take a step back and look at, at what God's doing in your life, uh, if, if you can look at it objectively, uh, you can see God's hand on your life. You can see what he's doing, how he's, how he's working. I can see how he called us here to Juno. I can see how he's growing this work. Um, I can see how he has plans for Northland Bible Church, uh, and, 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 and he is working those plans. Uh, and we're going to see some of that here in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, with five loaves and two fish. And one of the questions that I have when I get to heaven is how did the bread and fish thing work, right? Um, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to know, wouldn't you? Just, just out of curiosity. Um, I mean, yes, Jesus just did it. Uh, yeah, okay. We, we, we know that. But how? I mean, how did he do this? This is just, uh, I mean, you've got to be curious, too, right? How did Jesus do this? It's an incredible miracle, an incredible factual event. Over 5,000 people's needs were met. You know, Philippians 4.19 says, but my God shall supply all your needs. But you know, that's in a giving context. You realize that? Um, it's in an actually a missions-giving context. Uh, Paul is the missionary and the Philippians is the givers, but that's probably for another sermon, I guess. Uh, in John chapter 6, we see verses 5 and 6 here where Jesus lifted up his eyes. He sees the multitude, this great multitude, a vast amount of people, and they're hungry. It's 5,000 men. It doesn't include in that count the women and children. Uh, so there could have been 20-plus thousand people there. Uh, but we know that there were 5,000 hungry men, and that's a lot of biscuits and gravy, right? Yeah. Well, Jesus says he wants the crowd organized. We'll see that later so he can feed them. And he asked Philip, where's the bread going to come from so we can feed all of these people? And Philip says, and I quote here, duh, I don't know. That's, the, that's a literal Greek translation, by the way. I'm kidding, right? Not, not, not really, but... Andrew brought this boy's lunch, a small lunch. Um, when you think of the loaves, don't think of a loaf of bread like you would buy at the store. These are more like little biscuits. Okay, this was a kid's lunch. So maybe a bagel bite-sized thing, okay, five, five biscuits and then, then, then a couple of fish. And that was it. But Andrew says, you know, uh, well, here's this lunch. It's a small lunch. Jesus prays over the lunch, blesses it, and then he feeds everybody. Now, I would, it'd be cool to, to listen to that little boy. Hey, Mom, I traded lunches with Jesus today. Look what happened. You know, it's, Jesus is a miracle-working God in the body of a man. It's incredible to try to put yourself in this place and see him do this and meet these people's needs. There's four principles today that I uh, want to really, I want you to take these home with you, all right? Uh, I want them to become a part of you. Uh, the first thing that we notice about this 
is that Jesus saw these people. He saw the multitudes, and his heart saw them that day. You know, we see this all through Scripture that God has been looking. He's been looking at multitudes for a very long time. Over 7 billion people, and he sees into every person's heart with absolute detail. Everything that happens, all they do, all they think, he sees it all. Jesus sees these multitudes. And, and you know, people, people look at, at, at evangelism and, and missions like it's something new, right? Um, I mean, Jesus died on the cross, and, he, and, and, and so we came up with this plan because we've got to tell everybody about it, right? But, but, but God's been working on this plan since before time began. Think back just, just to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says this, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, uh, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And the end of verse 3 says, And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the nations, all the people groups, all the ethnicities are blessed because of him. See, God's been at this evangelism, this, this missions thing, for a very long time. Who likes reading First Chronicles? Some, some honest and, and odd people. I do enjoy it. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of names and they're hard to pronounce. Okay, but I do enjoy it. Listen to chapter 16 of verse 8. It says, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Now, what can we learn from Chronicles with all those names? Well, we know that God knows everybody's name, right? <laughs> he knows everybody's name. And uh, everybody dies. And then people talk about you after you die. Because that's what happens in the book of Chronicles. God's concerned about the individuals in the book of Chronicles, every single name. But he is concerned about individuals all through history. And his heart is emblazoned with compassion for these individuals. Jesus sees the multitudes, and he is concerned for them. First Chronicles 16, verse 23, it says, Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth, okay, so, so show, let people see from day to day his salvation. So God's been at this evangelism, this missions thing for a very long time. His eyes are on the multitudes, just like Jesus saw the people coming over the hill. He would see straight into their heart. Jesus sees these multitudes. He sees them whether they're in Denmark or Tanzania or Ireland or Utah or Kenya in Alaska. Here in Juneau, he sees people's lives. He sees into them and he sees what they need. Now, the question we have to ask is, is, do you see them? In that same chapter, Chronicles uh, 16, it says in verse 30 and 31, Fear before him all the earth. The world also shall be stable, that it be not moved. 
Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. And let men say among the nations, the Lord reigneth. See, God's been at this evangelism, missions, preaching the gospel since, since way before Abraham. He's done it in First Chronicles, in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 22. It says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. So here God is preaching the gospel in Isaiah because he's been at this for a very long time. He sees the multitudes. He cares for them. He has compassion for them. And the question again is, do you see these people that need Jesus Christ? Do you have compassion for them? See, Jesus' words often to his disciples were to lift up your eyes, look on the fields. Now, today, that would say, you know, put your phones down and look around, okay? You know, put it aside. Lift up your head. You're going to get a crick in your neck if you don't, okay? And look, okay? See the people around you. Jesus said that, that, that look on the fields. They're white already unto harvest. Matter of fact, Jesus says, pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Right? He says to lift up your eyes, okay, look, notice this. Don't say there's four months to harvest. No, they're ready right now, but you've got to look. You've got to see. You've got to open your eyes to them. God knew what it would take to get us excited about what he's excited about. We need to look. We need to see what he sees. And that's what this evangelism, this missions thing is all about. It's about looking. It's about seeing the people. See, Jesus saw that multitude. He expects us to see our multitude. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, And he said, It is a light thing that, that, that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and, restore, and, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. That's us. All right. It goes on, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. That's everyone. So God has had this evangelism, this missions plan in action for a very long time. Missions is not new. Evangelism is not new. Preaching the gospel to your friends and family and neighbors is not new. God has been redeeming lost souls for a very long time. Every major act that God has done, he has done to reach out to the multitudes and say to them, come. Let us, let us reason together. Yes, yes, your sins may be as scarlet, but just come and sit down at the table with me. Yes, I will take those scarlet sins. I can make them white as snow, but we've got to talk. They may be red like crimson, but I can make them as wool, but you've got to come. See, God's been at this for much longer than we tend to think he has. Just look at how the believers acted after the resurrection where Jesus says I want you to go into all the world and I want you to preach the gospel kind of a last will and testament thing and and he kept bringing it up to make sure that they you know got the point that 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 he got the point across and get this if you are saved it is your job to go into all the world and make sure that everyone knows what Jesus has done the disciples did not misunderstand this 
for the first 50 or 60 years of church history, hundreds of thousands were martyred for their faith. When Jesus says go, they understood because they went. In John chapter 20, verse 21, it says, Then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. So Jesus sends us. He says, go, go, get out there. And while you're going, tell them about me. So it's the job of every Christian to go or find somebody that will go in their place while they work where they can't well, they work where they are, and if they, okay, I, let me back up, I messed that up, all right? If you can't go someplace to preach the gospel yourself, it's your responsibility to find somebody to go in your place, all right? While you preach the gospel where you are. Okay, you don't get to do one or the other. Well, I'll just give a whole bunch of money to missions and, I just won't witness here in Juneau. Nope, doesn't work that way. Well, I'm, I'm trying to reach my family and my friends and my neighbors, and I'm you know, handing them tracts all the time, and I'm preaching to them, so I don't need to give to missions. Nope, it's not the way it works. You are simultaneously responsible to reach everyone on this planet for Christ. Okay. That's your job. You know, over 60% of missionaries that are on the field between our organization and the Southern Baptist um, are 60 years old or older. I'm two years from 60. Ah! Scary thought, right? In a few years, they're going to be gone. They're not going to be able to maintain life on the field. So where are the replacement missionaries going to come from? You were commanded to pray for laborers. John, uh, Luke, Luke 10.2 tells us that. And you know there's not some big gumball machine in heaven where God collects all our prayers and, and then when he finally gets enough, he sticks it in there, cranks out the knob, and, and then out pops a missionary. That's, that's not how this works. Laborers come from churches just like this one. And uh, they look a whole lot like you. Matter of fact, the next one could be you. Scare boy, it gets quiet when you start talking like that, doesn't it? We'd better start entertaining the possibility, because it's very real, that when we pray for laborers to go into the field, that God may very well decide to use you as an answer to your own prayer. And I think often that's why we don't want to pray that. Because we know, the Spirit of God makes sure that we know that that contingency is always in place. You want the people overseas reach for Christ? Take it to them. Oh, that changes the prayer priority, doesn't it? Yeah, we're not so big in a hurry to be praying for laborers then when, when we might have to answer our own prayer. You know, Jesus saw these multitudes. The question is, do you see him? Do you see your neighbor? Do you see the lady at the checkout stand? Do you see the guy at work? Do you see them the way Jesus saw them? The second thing I want you to take home is that Jesus proves or tests his disciples. 
He tests them, and he does this on purpose. Look at verse 6, where it says, where are we going to get the bread to feed all these people? All right. It says, this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus knew exactly what the plan was. He had the plan. The plan was already in motion. Then why does he ask Philip, where's, where's the bread going to come from? He did it to prove, to test, to assay him like you would a chunk of gold ore to see how, how pure it is. And he does this, excuse me, he does this all the time. One of God's chief goals for us today is to be made more like Christ than we were yesterday. That means he has to let us know where we are and where we need to go. So he tests us, not so he can see. That'd be silly. He's God. But he does that so we can see. And he tests us to show us where we are not like Jesus yet. Get used to us. A lot of us need a lot of work. So he's testing. So over 7 billion people in the world, where's the manpower? Where's the resources going to come from to reach all of them? It's a big job, and there's never enough people. So he asks the same question. Uh, why does he do this? To prove us, to test us. He already has the plan. He already has the plan for your life. He knows what to do, but he says, we've got a problem. What are you going to do? That's what he did with Philip. We've got a problem. What are you going to do, Philip? How are you going to take care of this? And he does this all the time. He does this when you have family problems, when you have financial problems, when there's issues in your marriage. He does it with your kids, with your job. God is always saying, we have a problem here. What are you going to do about it? And God is waiting to reveal himself to a watching world by what he does through you. He doesn't call you to get involved just so people can see what you can do. He calls you to an assignment that cannot be done without him. And that assignment is going to have God-sized dimensions, just like reaching the world for Christ. It has God-sized dimensions. And when God asks you to do something that you cannot do, then you're going to face a crisis of belief. You're going to have to decide what you really believe about God. Can he, will he do what he has said he would do, what he wants to do through you? And, 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 and what do you do in response to this invitation reveals what you believe about God, regardless of what you say you believe about God. Because there's always two choices here, two ways that we can respond to the question. I mean, there's, there's, there's Philip's way. Oh, no, look, a year's wage is not enough. Look at verse 7. And Philip answered, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Nope, sorry, can't be done. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough bread. Not by me. End of story. Then there's Andrew. You know, I have no idea, but hey, this kid gave me his lunch. You know, it's two completely different reactions. And when God moves in your life and says you've got a problem, on your shoulders rests the responsibility of reaching seven plus billion people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do? Right? 
It's your responsibility. It's your duty to make sure that everyone knows. And it is, by the way, your duty, your responsibility. You've got a problem, Jesus says. What are you going to do about it? And Philip, you know, he's, he's mumbling. Well, let's see. He pulls out a little calculator or, or abacus, I guess they would have back then, right? And he, my, I can't afford this. And let's see, we'll budget that. And uh, see, my plans for my life. And uh, nope, sorry. I've seen the numbers. I've crunched them. We can't do this. It's, it's too big. Then Andrew says, well, Lord, it ain't much, but you, know, you can have whatever I have because it comes from you anyways. Uh, so here, you can have my money. You can have my tithe. You can have my life. You can have my plans. You can have my ambitions. See the two different states of the heart here. Because when the Lord says, we've got a problem, what are you going to do about it? You say, I don't know. I don't see any answer. I don't think it can be done. Or you can say, I don't know, Lord. What are you going to do through me? And there's the difference. That's the difference. Philip says, no, I cannot do this. Andrew says, here's the lunch. What can you do, Jesus? When the Lord places a burden on your heart for the people of the world and says that you have a problem, there's too many burdens, what are you going to do? The answer is, I don't know, Lord. What are you going to do through me? How will you use me? That is what living by faith, giving by faith, going by faith is about. It's saying, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. What are you going to do through me? Every person who has been saved by God should be involved in God's plan on God's team for evangelism, missions, local and abroad. That means actively and aggressively witnessing where you are, where you live, and just as actively and aggressively giving so others can evangelize where you can't go. You know, God, God means to make an issue of money. He does it on purpose. We know every, every Christian should tithe 10% of the gross. That's just the base, all right? That's, that's, that's Sunday School 101, all right? Every Christian should tithe. But every Christian should also support missions. You're a direct people of other, direct product of other people's giving. You may not realize that, but, but you are. You're a product of other people's sacrifice. Others have sacrificed so this church could start and grow. You're the result of, of, of missions money that has been sacrificed. And every Christian should be able to trust God to give what he leads them to give. Jesus tests his disciples. He tests us. Say so the problem is too big. How, Philip, are you going to handle this? And, and we can either react like Philip or we can react like Andrew, where Philip says, no, I can't do it, so I'm not going to do anything. No, I can't reach seven billion people, so I'm not going to try to reach one. Or you can react like Andrew that says, you know, I, it's, I got a lunch, you know. What can you do with this, Jesus? And after, after the disciples are tested, after they're proved, then Jesus uses them. 
That's number three. Jesus uses his disciples after he proves them. We've read verse 7 where, where, where Philip says, nope, can't do it. Look at what verse 8 says. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, make, make the men sit down. Oh, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. You know, Christ alone can save the world. But he will not save the world alone. He, uh, he's the bread of life. But he must be served to the hungry. He works through you and me, and he's going to wait until we're ready to get with his program. You know, all the missionaries or soul winners to reach all 7 billion people could come out of just our country. It could. If Christians in Washington State carry on a war footing, they could finance the entire thing. There's no shortage of money. See, a war footing is four to one. Okay? One gone, four people home. One dollar gone, four dollars stay home. Right now we're at about a 15 to one. We're really lopsided. If we could do this, then the Christians, the Christians in South Carolina could win the world to Christ, and the Christians in Washington and Alaska could pay for it all. There, there's no shortage of money. See, God doesn't need another plan. He doesn't need another program. He doesn't need another principle. What he needs are willing people. You think about this, this account here. What if there had been two spoiled disciples? What if two of them had been arguing and sassing while the other ten are getting everybody organized? Jesus prays, he breaks the bread, uh, the ten are passing it all out, but the other two are disorganized, nothing's going on, people aren't being fed because they're not paying attention, they're arguing with one another, and that's the way it is in God's plan. When, when, when disciples don't do their job, people go unfed. When we don't do our job, people do not hear the gospel. That's a frightening thought. It ought to be a frightening thought to you. That when you're not obedient, people don't hear the gospel. And you know, you may never have to look someone in the eye and have to explain why you did not make sure they had a chance to, 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 to eat of the bread of life. But you will look in God's eyes. I'd rather look in the person's eyes than God's eyes. Ezekiel chapter 3 Beginning in verse 17, it says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked that thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at, at thine hand. Yet, if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way. He shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, verse 20. When a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I say, and I, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man 
that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. Now what principle do we have here? The Lord's basically saying, if I say go or give, and you go and give, you're basically off the hook whether they get saved or not, because whether they get saved or not is between them and the Lord. But if I say go, or if I say give, and you don't go, and you don't give, then I'll require their blood at your hands. And again, I would rather look that person in the face than God and have to explain myself. Now, I would not want to have to do either one, but if I had a choice, I'd pick the lesser, of course, but, but we don't have that choice. See, we've been, uh, we've been given much. And to whom much is given, much is required. We have eaten of the bread of life. We have drunk deeply of the water of life. While others starve, we get spiritually fat. See, Jesus sees these multitudes, and he's asking if you see them the way he does. Jesus proves or tests his disciples, and he asks, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Jesus works through his disciples after he tests them, and he is asking, will you serve? Will you go? Will you answer this call? Will you give? And God has always been asking, whom shall I send, and who will go for me? And we are obligated to go and to pray for laborers to be quickly sent out. And there's one more, number four. And that is that Jesus accepts your sacrifice, no matter the size, and somehow he makes it enough. Look at verse 11 and 12. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto, this, unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Five loaves, five biscuits, and two little fish. It's not the size of the offering. It's the size of the sacrifice that makes the difference. It's the size of what it cost you. These were barley loaves, poor people's bread. If you were rich, you ate wheat. If you were like the rest of us, no, it was barley. So this is an average kid, blue-collar family kind, kind of kid. His lunch is given to Christ Christ meets the need. He multiplies what is given. So let's ask, what, 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 what of your life? When God asks for your life, do you try to buy him off with your money or you try to buy him off with a little time here and there? That's, that's not going to be enough. A lot given does not necessarily mean that a lot has been sacrificed and again, why does God bring up money all the time, so often? I mean, Jesus taught or preached on money and possessions okay, three times more than he preached on heaven and hell put together. Right? He made it the issue. 
15% of the time, Jesus deals with money and possessions. He knows that money can become a stumbling block. He knows it can become a wall. He knows that itself can become a little god to us. So to rob money of its power, you have to let it go. You have to give it away. And we're not preaching prosperity gospel. These are solid biblical principles. The Lord loves a cheerful. That word is better translated hysterical. The Lord loves a hysterical giver. The Lord loves someone that is eager to sacrifice for him so that his work can be done. And God could do it without money. Don't fool yourself. God does not need your money. He's chosen to use your money because if he has your money, he has your heart already. He's ordained, so to speak, this whole monetary system. And he wants hearts and he wants people involved. So where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You watch where your heart goes. Okay? If you follow your heart, it will lead you to your treasure. And the, and, and, and the question you've got to ask, do you treasure what Jesus treasures enough to sacrifice to secure that treasure? It's not the size of the offering. It's the size of the sacrifice. Now, the conclusion is simple. I know we're late. Food will be fine. The conclusion is simple. What are you going to do? Jesus sees the multitudes. Do you see them? Jesus tests his disciples, and when he tests you, how are you going to respond? Jesus works through his children. He has decided in his sovereignty that he limits the spread of the gospel with our obedience. So, Will you serve? And then Jesus accepts your sacrifice. He accepts it. He takes it. He multiplies it. So will you indeed sacrifice so Jesus can multiply what you've given and meet the need of feeding 7 billion people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question I want to leave with you. Do you trust him enough to give him everything and let him multiply what he needs to get the job done? I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you for its authority, as we do always. We, we, we thank you that we can trust it, that we can depend on it, that you lead us through it. And Father, we understand that we've taken this account and given it a missions application. We, we understand we've done that. We've seen the principles, Lord, that that you use, you, you use your people to carry out your ministry. So, Father, I pray for those this morning that, uh, 
Maybe they're on the fence. Maybe they don't know a lot about this missions giving thing. Maybe they've not thought that reaching their neighbors and those in other countries are their responsibility. Whatever the need is, whatever the case is, Father, we trust your Holy Spirit to meet us at the point of our need to, to, to strip away all the misconceptions so that we see your word clearly and we see the application to our life clearly. Lord, you've made it very clear that we are to be the ones to preach or to go. So please work in us to accomplish your will and your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you come ahead?